One morning I was sitting at my teller's wicket as a bank teller, RBC Royal Bank Main Branch, preparing my paperwork for the opening of the bank at 9.30. When all of a sudden I felt a hard slap in the back of my head. I quickly turned around to see who hit me and why. And there was my coworker, Stanley, who was also a teller. He looked me in the face and practically almost got nose to nose with me and says, so what you gonna do about it? Turn the other cheek, Christian? Well, I really wanted to do something. We probably both would have gotten fired that day. But Stanley was no bigger than I was, so I could easily have taken him down. But he was a, a bully. He was always bragging about he was from, how he was from the ghetto and what he could do and what he could not do. And he did that as a way of intimidation. And so he was a ghetto bully trying to provoke me as a Christian to get into a fight with him. And uh, I refused. But my refusal only exacerbated the situation more because his ridicules and his bullying continued. And they were ramped up. And it caused me to have to keep looking over my shoulders to make sure that I was not in any close proximity to Stanley to get another whack. Um, Stanley was making my life a living hell. And I had to keep looking out for him. But I took comfort in a verse that I had chosen as my life verse prior to that time. It was 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's how I dealt with Stanley's whack in the back of my head. Instead of retaliating, I chose to trust God to take care of the situation and deal with it with Stanley someday. I decided that I was going to commit it to God and wait for God in his timing to do whatever he's going to do to stop Stanley from bullying me. And that day came one Monday morning when Stanley showed up at work, a changed person. Apparently, there was a street meeting in his neighborhood that weekend prior to coming to work, and Stanley had gotten saved. The bully was born again. Boy, was I relieved. I tell you, when I got the news that morning, I believe I was rejoicing more than the angels in heaven to know that Stanley was saved. And that I didn't have to take matters into my own hand. Because, see, I was a wrestling fan. And I was really thinking about body stop slamming Stanley and putting him in a figure four until he cried uncle. And that thought ran across my mind many times. But God, I delivered, the, I trusted God to take care of that situation for me. And he came through. And that happened 25 years ago. And that was a test of my trust in God. Listen. Whether, whether it's difficult people 
or difficult times, or both. God wants and expects us to just simply trust him. Can we do that? Just trust him. Psalm 37 verses 3 to 5 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. Watch and listen to this. Perhaps you can identify. What if you call me and don't feel me near you? Will you still trust me? What if I tell you to let go of everything that you think you have to hold? Will you trust me? Yes. I'll trust you, Lord. What if it costs my life? Yes. I'll trust you, Lord. What if I lose the very thing I love so dear? Yes. Somebody say, yes, I'll trust you, Lord. Somebody say, yes. Come on, put your hands up. Say, yes, I'll trust you. I'll trust you. I'll trust you. I can hear Jesus singing. He says this.
suffered a lot. He suffered a lot of difficulty at the hands of ungodly, unprincipled men during his lifetime. And while there is no prayer in this 37th Psalm written by him in his old age, everything in it is, is certain, predictive, prophetic, and admonishing regarding how to respond in difficult times, when we become victims of wicked schemes and toxic tongues. It's a biblical fact that fretting and murmuring is always destructive to the real peace of the soul. But we can overcome, as we'll see today, by trusting in, delighting in, committing to, and resting in the Lord. David reminds us that we can have the assurance that God will never, ever, ever forsake his precious saints in difficult times. When difficult times challenge our very sanity and existence. And so the question is, what is or should be our response to evildoers. Verse 1 and 2. Psalm of David, do not fret because of evildoers. 
Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Notice, David begins with a divine command. Three words. Do not fret. We must not allow ourselves to fret because of evildoers. But what does it mean to fret? To worry. Having our heart burn within us. Having no real peace. Becoming troubled. See, when we let our encounters with evildoers cause us to worry, we take the risk of having a real miserable experience. Because we lay in bed at night rehearsing the whole offensive episode all over again. Notice how it progresses from bad to worse the more we dwell on it. First, we think of all they said and did to us. Woe is me. Then we think of how we should have answered them. What are we missing stuff? And then we wish we had, we had some more hurtful word bricks to hit them with. And then finally, our digestive juices turn to sulfuric acid and, and we lie in bed tossing and turning all night, wondering when we will ever get some sleep. Ever been there? That's what happens. So by worrying, we hurt no one but ourselves and accomplish absolutely nothing. And so we want to have any degree of real peace, David tells us. Fretting is one thing that we don't do. But David's added advice is whatever else we do, be not envious toward wrongdoers. In other words, we must never, ever be envious of wrongdoers because unlike you and I, the only heaven they will ever have is this earth. They're not going anywhere. Notice what he says about them. He says, what, what will happen to them? Verse 2, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. According to David, it won't be long before God's great edge tool, perhaps his divine lawnmower, will mow them down and their impressive careers and lifestyles will quickly wither and fade away. And so the negative side of this picture is don't let them get you agitated and don't wish you were like them. Many times we do that, don't we? We let them cause us to get bent out of shape. And then we wonder, boy, I wish I was like him. On the positive side, our response should be trust in the Lord. Look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Trust is simply having faith that God will care for you. That God has got your back. We trust God when things go well. 
But when they go wrong, we are filled with despair and doubt. And when filled with doubt, we're not living by faith. We're living by sight. This trust does not mean having an idle, impractical hope that everything may turn out all right. It means having a deep abiding dependence on the God who has promised to punish the ungodly and to reward the righteous. It is a promise-keeping God that we are asked to trust in. But then truth calls for activity. Truth calls for us to do something. Truth calls for us to do good. And so the challenge we have is to avoid a do-nothing posture, a do-nothing disposition. Don't give up. Don't give in to fear. Don't just sit down in despair. Instead, David says, do good. But the question is, what good can we do? What good are we supposed to do? What good is he asking us to do? Two things, he says. He says, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So one of the first things we do is we dwell in the land. But then, how do we dwell in the land? We dwell in the land, but not in ways that we are considered to be so earthly-minded that we are no heavenly good. In other words, you dwell in the land but not as a good-for-nothing Christian. You dwell in the land, not just marking time, but you dwell in the land for good. You dwell in the land in a way that God is being glorified. And you're not just marking time and blending in with all of the wrongdoers and the evildoers. So that's the first thing he says. He says, dwell in the land. You're not going anywhere, so dwell. But do so in a way that benefits the kingdom of God. And then secondly, he says, cultivate faithfulness by engaging in activity for God that is edifying to others. In other words, become the kind of example of faithfulness that will cultivate faithfulness in those that are exposed to you. Those who see how you're living your life. Impact those around you, he says, with faithfulness. Because in so doing, you are cultivating faithfulness in the lives of others by your faithfulness. In other words, you do it in such a way that, as the songwriter says, may those who come behind you find you faithful. But you're going to have some challenges. The devil is not going to sit idly by and let you do what you want to do. And so we need to remember that regardless of how ferocious the evildoers Attacks may be. No sheep of Christ will ever perish. Jesus himself reminds us of that. When he says in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give, them, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then John chapter 14 reminds us that those who place his trust in Christ is guaranteed a dwelling place in the Father's house. But suppose, suppose you have a, a great passion to carry on a certain ministry for the Lord. You felt confident that God has been leading you and calling you and your only and sole desire to do this ministry is to glorify God. Yet, you have been opposed. You have been blocked. You have been frustrated at every turn by some powerful adversary. What do you do in such a case? How do you respond? David's answer and advice is that you delight in the Lord. Verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord. You see, joy is one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. And so David says, you, you delight in him if you can't delight in anybody else. Delight in him even if you can't find any joy in yourself. But do so. Knowing with all confidence that in his own time and in his own unique way, what does the rest of the verse says? He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, sometimes instead of delighting in the Lord, we just want to have that feel good satisfaction of getting even. You know what I mean? Tit for tat, butter for fat, you kill my dog, I kill your cat. Sometimes we just want to have that satisfaction that, that we want to get even. We want to make them hurt like they hurt us. Like I wanted to body slam Stanley. But even though frustration may cause us to feel the urge to retaliate against the evildoers rather than delight in the Lord, listen, there's no need for you to fight back. Even though every fiber in your body is, is crying out to hit him or her. You don't fight back simply because it's not your fight. We don't think about that, do we? We won't fight, but it's not your fight. Sometimes we may feel justified in fighting back, only to get the stuffing beat out of us. We go crying to God, asking Him, Lord, why didn't you help me? And the response is always the same. Always the same. The battle is not yours, but God's. God's word is absolutely clear. He says in Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. You don't have to do nothing. Just sit and watch the salvation of the Lord. Probably you've been falsely accused and misquoted and slandered. And it wouldn't be so hurtful if, if, some, if there was some shred of truth to the accusations. 
but they are absolutely false and malicious. No truth at all to them. What should you do? David's advice is commit to the Lord. Look at verse 5. He says, commit your way to the Lord. The question is, what exactly is your way? It's any pure purpose you have, any worthy ambition you have, any duty that you have, anything you have to do, any road you have to travel, all of your outgoings, that's your way. You see, we must commit our beginnings to him before we go on our way, and it turns out to be the wrong way. And we do that a lot, don't we? Lord, I got this. We must have his companionship from the very beginning of our journey. Why? Because if we go it alone, fretfulness is waiting in the shadows. And it will encounter you before you get too far on your way. But if you go out with God as your companion, you will have his peace that passeth all understanding. But David wants us to understand that we don't just petition God and go on worrying like we do at times. David says, commit the entire matter to the Lord. He means roll the whole weight of it onto the Lord. Then the matter becomes his and not yours. He accepts the full responsibility, which is too heavy for you to bear. There's only one problem. Our problem is with hesitancy, with reluctancy. With, boy, I really don't feel like doing this. We cast our burdens on them, then quickly take them back. Take them back on ourselves in impatience. You see, while we may not say it verbally, we are thinking it mentally. My Lord, you're taking too long. So I got this. Isn't that what we do? We don't want to wait for the Lord. He's taking too long. David says, trust also in him. Instead, we let him act on our behalf. And notice what he'll do. It says, and he will do it. What will he do? The text says, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In other words, God will make sure that you are completely vindicated. You don't have to raise a finger. It will become clear to all, for all to see that you are innocent after all. God says he'll do that. But we've got to trust him. We've got to give him time. Let him work in his way, in his own time. And don't be a nag. And so David says, after you commit your way to the Lord by putting your trust in him, the next step is having real peace regardless 
of the evil works around you. How are we supposed to have any kind of peace when the works of evil are so active? David says simply, rest in the Lord. Verse 7a says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Having done everything so far in response to evil people or evil workers or wrongdoers by placing trust in the Lord, delighting in the Lord, committing my way to the Lord, now it's time to just rest in the Lord. Just rest. Don't worry. Regardless of whatever happens, just refer it to the Lord. Just take it to him. If anything is harmful, he'll to do it. If anything is, is, is helpful to ministry, he'll make the adjustments for your need. To rest in the Lord is to be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Just sit silently before God. You know, for a fever, a doctor would prescribe rest. Because without it, the patient is not likely to pull through. Rest is essential. We need rest. For David, who you can say have been there and done that, his advice is rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Notice how there's the resource for the believer is repeatedly said to be in the Lord. I mean, Jesus himself said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He says, without me, you can't do anything. And yet David is reminding us of the same thing. Our resource is in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, he says in verse 3. Delight in the Lord, he says in verse 4. Rest in the Lord, he says. Or commit your way to the Lord, he says in verse 5. And rest in the Lord in verse 7a. Wait patiently for the Lord, verse 7b. You know, the hardest thing sometimes for us to do is wait. Isn't that so? The prophet told the man, of, told the servant of God, the king, he says, I want you to go and you wait on me to come and make the sacrifice. What did he do? He decided, man, I can't wait for him. I'm going to do it myself. And as a result, he lost his throne. So, one of the hardest things for us to do is wait. And so sometimes uh, it's one of those things that we're not really good at. Waiting. But you see, real faith will always wait with confidence because God is always able to do what he has promised. Always what he has promised to do. Romans 4.21 tells us, And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was, also, he was able also to perform. You believe that? God is a promise-keeping God. You can trust him. Remember Abraham? Abraham's life was marked by mistakes and sins and failures as well as some wisdom and goodness. But one of the things about Abraham is he trusted God consistently. 
Every step of the way, he trusted God. But notice what David goes on to say here in verse 7b. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Notice this this is the second time that David's advice is do not fret. He says even though the evil person prospers in his way. Even though he prospers and he succeeds in everything, in all of his wicked schemes, and all that he, he, gets, he puts his hand to, the Christian should not worry about it. Boy, that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Here you are, living as God wants you to do, walking the straight and narrow as God wants you to, and that man down the road is living like the devil and he's prospering. That's hard. So what, do we, so what if the wicked succeeds and your plans fail? Don't worry about it. Don't get stressed out about it. Don't pull out your hair if you got any about it. Because God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, There is more of the love of God in your failures than in the successes of the wicked. You just got to believe that. Because God said it. He causes all things to work together for good. But only to those who trust him. Notice what he says in verse 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Cease from anger. Especially anger that goes against God's arranged providence. He says, avoid jealousy over the temporary pleasures of those who will soon be banished from all kinds of comfort. Question is, why is he singled out anger here? Because anger anywhere is madness. It's provoked insanity. And as a destructive emotion, anger leads to the rage of wrath. That's what he says. You have to forsake wrath. But what does wrath do? It displays a lack of trust. And since anger will always try to keep your company, he says, we must forsake it. Do you realize that anger is always trying to keep company with you? When you're driving and that person cut you off, what happens? You get angry. Anger is sitting right in the seat next to you. He's trying to keep company with you. But David says, you got to forsake him. Forsake it, he says. And then for the third time, David's advice is, verse 37b, do not fret. See that? Why such repetition? To emphasize that fretfulness always stands on the threshold of great sin. You see, even after, even after deciding not to get upset over the way we were treated, we have the tendency to go back and stir up the mud all over again in our minds, which proves to be self-defeating. 
and also dangerous. David says, avoid fretting by not dwelling on our problems because it only leads to evil doing. You dwell on your problems and you could always be thinking about ways to get even. So he says, don't, don't dwell on it. It only leads to evil doing. It causes you to become anxious and angry. Ever had that experience? Every time you think about how somebody offended you, what happens? You get mad, right? Yeah. Every time you think about what he did to you, you get angry. Every time that, that, that episode crosses your mind, you get angry. And so David says, do not fret. Don't dwell on the problems. If we allow our, ourselves to indulge in such attitudes, they can eventually lead to violent words and violent actions. And what happens? It makes us the offenders ourselves. So we become a stumbling block to those that we are supposed to be reaching for Jesus. But then David reminds us that ain't long now. He says there's coming a day when all the wrongs of this earth will be made right. Know what he says about that time. Verse 9 through 11. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. See that? Notice. In a nutshell, he says, all evildoers is going to be cut off. But those who trust in the Lord will do what? They will inherit the land, right? What land? The land that was promised to them by a promise-keeping God. He says, in a little while. It means it ain't long now. He says, in a little while, the wicked will vanish from the scene. They will disappear. Puff. Like a puff of smoke, he says. And even though, notice what he says, even though you will look carefully for them. The emphasis that people are going to be looking for them. Wonder where they're going. Wonder what happened to them. He says, even though you will look carefully for them in his place. And in his place emphasizes you're going to be looking for them in the usual place where they usually hang out. You're not going to see them. You're going to miss them. And you're going to go looking for them because you know where they used to hang out. And you're going to look, look looking for them in their place, the places where they hung out. But your search, he says, will be in vain. No success. But then notice again how he mentions the humble, the people of God, the righteous. In that day, the humble will delight themselves by enjoying unprecedented prosperity. You see, the wrongdoers and the evildoers may have it now, but yours coming. 
Yours is coming. Your day of prosperity is on the threshold. He says we will enjoy, the, 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 the humble will, will delight themselves by enjoying unprecedented prosperity in the land they will inherit. Notice how, he, how he, he mentions again the inheritance of the land. You will get yours is the implication. But you know, from the world's point of view, being humble barely seems like the right attitude for dealing with evildoers. We somehow want to get even. We somehow want to make them feel the hurt that they hurt us with or they caused. But since the battle is God's, God's warfare must be carried out with calm faith, humility before him, and hope for his deliverance. We can't do it our way. We've got to do it God's way. And so we have seen in this psalm how, how David vividly expresses the belief that God is most evidently on the side of the righteous. And he will make wrongdoers understand it in a very decisive way. He's going to do it. But we must trust him. So for the difficult times we face, David's clear advice to us today is trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Wait patiently for him. And when we do, we can have a biblical response to evil people. Not a wishy-washy, fly-by-night response. A biblical response to evil people in our world today and those around us who try to provoke us in the wrong way. And not only that, but we will know the experience of having real peace regardless of the evil works all around us. I trust that the Lord has challenged your heart today to trust him more than you have in the past and that you will begin to see the benefits of what it means to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and allow him to be the one to direct your path. May the Lord bless you as you endeavor to do just that. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we're grateful, Lord, that you are clear and concise in your instructions in how you would have us to live our lives in a way that would bring you glory, that would bring you honor, that we may live in the land and cultivate faithfulness, that others may come to know who you are, and that even when we leave the scene, others will indeed find us faithful. We pray, O oh God, that as we leave this building, we will not leave the instructions of your word within this building, but that we would take it with us outside of these four walls 
and allow it to impact the lives of those that we come in contact with as we have allowed it to impact our own lives. Get glory, we pray. Get honor, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.